What's up, everybody? Welcome to Mixtapes. I'm your host, Eric Stanglin. I just want to say real quick, if you want to support the show, um, get on anchor.fm and uh, look up my name. And uh, you can donate to the show, which has been helping out greatly. You know, we've been uh, getting a lot of great guests. So any reviews you can do on Apple Pods, if you are on Apple Podcasts, would really help out the show. And uh, we've got a great guest today. We're always trying something new on mixtapes. We don't want to do just a typical interview. So we're going to do a little live guitar talk today also. And also interview my friend, Vince Gates. He owns his own music store. He plays in a couple of bands, including the best Pink Floyd tribute band, in my opinion. And he's really a master of tone. Welcome to the show, Mr. Vince Gates. How are you doing today, buddy? Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Absolutely, my friend. How are things, man? Things are good. Good. Yeah. Good. Yep. Business is rolling along. Yeah, getting getting through this pandemic and uh, running a music store during during the pandemic. I mean, what? Uh, how much of a challenge was that for you? Well, uh, yeah, the first couple of weeks of shutdown was really weird. You know, really, uh, uh, really a pain. But I I was here. Um, my open sign was off, you know, and the door was closed, but people were calling me all day long and, uh, I would go out and meet them at the curb and, you know, people needed their strings and picks and, and cables and stuff, you know, so, um, it, it turned out I was essential to the Carson city area. So that was, it was kind of nice, you know, and, and it did, I mean, overall it slowed business down, but, um, you know, as soon as the. We got through the first month of it. Um, they started to pick up. What did what did you um, what was the silver lining for you with the pandemic? You know, owning the music store was there something that you didn't notice that the pandemic brought light to? Yeah, how much we breathe and breathe on everything and touch everything. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But um, I, I don't know. Um, the silver lining for the pan, uh, for the pandemic was uh, people having a lot of spare time, free time, you know, working from home. And, and, uh, I, I heard dozens of, of stories about how it was a bucket list thing that people wanted to learn to play guitar or play ukulele or whatever. Um, so I, I, you know, I sold, sold some instruments to some people. Yeah. yeah that's uh, it's interesting. Cause for me, I thought I was in real trouble because I lost all my gigs and then, um, I lost a decent amount of students, you know, ones that just didn't want to take online lessons. And I had uh, some students that were really awesome and stuck with me. And God bless them. Thank, thanks again. If any of you guys are listening to this pod, thank you so much for sticking with me, man. I greatly appreciate it because I teach for a living. So when that hit hit, it was bad. And, you know, it depleted pretty much all my savings. And then, you know, what I started noticing, like you said, more people started learning guitar and then more people started to get, I think, more um familiar and comfortable with like doing stuff online you know what i mean like we're doing this yeah. this podcast right now online using zoom i mean my my uh, guitar list of students is growing again thank god and uh it's a wonderful thing to be able to you know have them not miss as many lessons which i thought was always kind of cool where it's like oh man i'm not gonna get to work in time and i gotta go home and i gotta do this and that it's like they just go home they turn on their computer and they can have their lessons so i've noticed that people's playing has gotten a lot stronger because life didn't get in the way like life did get in the way pre-pandemic. And that's mm -hmm. kind of like the silver lining I looked at, if that makes sense. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, you know, it's just it's just trying to survive and, and realizing that, you know, you can find your way. And especially if it's something you love, like you love, you know, having a music store. I love teaching guitar. And it's one of those things where you just find ways, like water, 
you find the water always finds a way around the rock, right? It doesn't try to always smash right into it, and that's super important. So I want the listeners, especially listeners that don't know you, I want them to learn a little bit about you. So let's start from the beginning. Where did you first get bit by the music bug? When did music first come into your life? Uh, see, my my um, my mom's second husband was a uh, country western, a retired country western frontman, and uh, he showed me a chord or two on the guitar. And then um, my mom's sister, my aunt Marge, uh, she showed me uh, uh, freight train in C on the guitar. Um, and so how old was I? I was like 10 or 11 years old. Okay. Uh, but then uh, I didn't really t- take it seriously until I was about 13. I got a, I got a guitar and uh, started playing it every day. That's awesome, man. Same age as me. I started at 13 too. I wanted to start at nine, but coming from the Irish Catholic family, I came from, uh, you know, I was going to do drugs and drop out of high school, even though I wasn't even in high school yet. So there, there was a big pushback, but, you know, and it's funny because my mom is like such a great supporter, you know, of my music. Actually, my family really is. I'm grateful for that. But uh, I'm the only music guy in my whole family, like completely, which is pretty Pretty, pretty crazy. So it's kind of neat that you actually had, you know, musicians in the family, which I think does make a huge difference for sure. So you started playing in bands when you were young. You remember how old you were in the first band you played in? Uh, the first band I was in, I was 15, I think, 15 or 16. Okay. Uh, yeah, with Brian Callahan and uh, Chris Wright. And nice. uh, then uh, Chris uh, uh, quit playing with us and uh, we picked up Pierre Marche. So it was uh, me and uh, Brian Callahan and Pierre. And so I'm, I just joined a band with Pierre recently. So we're, I was, we're I was just about to say, that's kind of like a, an interesting like circle, right? I didn't know that yeah. he was one of the first guys you play with. And, and, you know, I, I definitely want to get Pierre on the show. I mean, Pierre, you know, plays with Screeching Weasels, which I know some people know about and Zoinks and he's done a lot of stuff. He's a phenomenal drummer and he's, he's, he's writing his own tunes and he's put a hell of a band together, man. You guys, I'm really looking forward to hearing you guys. Um, real quick, let's plug that band real quick. The band name of the band is Irreplaceable Beings. Nice. And uh, how close are you guys to uh, to actually gigging? Oh, uh, we're, we're well. We're looking at doing you know a forty five minute to an hour slot. You know, um, and we're getting pretty close to being able to do that. Excellent. Yeah, it'll be weird too because correct me if I'm wrong. Like, did you play any gigs? Like after like you know when the pandemic started until now have you played at all i haven't played since 2019 wow i haven't played a gig since 2019 the last game was with the floyd that's crazy what what do you feel like what do you think that's going to feel like the first time you get back up on stage again i'm gonna feel really good i'm sure yeah right right i bet you like uh i bet you've been thinking about it right for sure yeah yeah well there's nothing there's nothing booked so there's nothing really to uh, envision but uh uh, yeah, I, I look forward to being on stage again. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think we all do. I mean, I got to, I got lucky to play a couple gigs. I'm I'm really just trying to do stuff outdoors. I'm, you know, you know, with with my health issues, I'm I'm still a little afraid to really be honest with you. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to to be as safe as I possibly can. So we're talking about you know music. We're talking about getting started playing in your first band. Um, then you end up getting into working at a music store which I think is really important probably to your development as a musician. And I, I want the listeners to understand, you know, from your side, your aspect of it, what, what, is, what was, how important was it 
for you to work at a music store at such an early age? Oh, it was kind of foundational. Uh, I mean, it's been my career for uh, 31, 32 years now. Um, it, um, yeah, it was, it was foundational to me. It, it helped you probably, you know, one of the things I think about a lot is when you're, when you're working in a music store, you know, there's downtime and stuff like that. And I'm sure a lot of your honing of tone and understanding of just so much when it comes to plenty of instruments too, not just guitar, right? Because where, when you started at the music store, what, where did you start? Like what, what position did you hold? Well, they hired me to be the um, electronic piano expert. And, <laughs> and uh, um, within uh, a month, uh, that was no longer a thing. And I was the guitar amplifier, the, the rock and roll uh, department manager. Right. And that's, uh, and it, so that was, and that was, how old were you at that time? Were you like 21? I was 19. When 19. I wow. That's insane. Now, when you're 19 and you're running that department, you have any aspirations of running your own music store? Or do you think that was just crazy? No, I didn't really think about it. I was just, uh, I was just having a good time in the moment. Right. Now, let me ask you another question. Since you're in that department and as the music store is growing, right, and you're getting, um, I'm assuming, buying power too, right? You're, you're allowed to kind of, and, and obviously, if, if the people that don't understand, you know, you work for a mom and pop store, so it's a lot different than working for a big guitar center where, you know, you don't always get all the brands that you want to get depending on buy-ins or just, you're not allowed to carry that certain model depending on, you know, like what stores have what, right. Um, did you get into the recording aspect of, of music through the music store or were you messing around before that with like a, a Tascam four track or something like that? Um, I, I've got a, it's a Yamaha, actually a Yamaha MT1X. Um, I got it. I got that when I was 14. So wow. I've, I've been and and a, a friend of mine loaned me his uh, old school Roland uh, drum machine. And so I'd lay down a drum machine track and lay down a rhythm guitar track and, and then uh, play lead over it. I was doing that when I was 14. You have any of those uh, tapes still? Yeah, actually, I just I just went through some of those. To, I was looking for a particular song that I that I recorded. I never found it, but I listened. I listened to like an hour's worth of just garbage. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna. Um, I was gonna ask you, like, what was it? What was it like listening to that stuff? Well, it was like um, all the song on. All the, well, it wasn't really. It wasn't garbage, but it was just you know immature, and and uh, a lot of it was uh, uh, trying to be comedic, and um, I don't know. It's uh, it's pretty cringy. Right, right. Did any of it grab you? Like, did you hear any of it that you're like, you know what, that was kind of a cool idea? There were there were a few songs that were, uh, you know, uh, the, the idea was there. Yeah, um, I, I might even uh, might even uh, revisit some of those tunes. I don't know. That's so cool, man. I'm so glad you have that. I know I've got some four track cassettes in a box somewhere you know what i mean and and it, it's i think it's cool to listen to go back to those things because i think it I don't, I don't know if it did this to you but it, it brought back a time and a place for me you know sometimes i think about oh i was recording on that that crate amp or i was using this kramer guitar or or man i was really out of tune and i didn't even realize it <laughs> you know th <laughs> things like that you know so so you or started that's really, or that's a really noisy signal 
Oh, God. <laughs> oh, especially with four tracks, man. And it's funny, too, because I remember getting a four track. And I got mine, I think, when I was 16. And I remember laughing because I get it. I'm so excited, right? And I bring it home. And I'm trying to record stuff, and I'm like, man, this sounds nothing like, you know, because I thought, like, gave the four-track was going to make make everything supposedly sound amazing. And you realize a lot of it is not the machinery. It's the understanding of getting sounds to tape, which I think you're really a master at. And, you know, you've been able to record a lot of people. And I, I don't want to get too far into that yet because I want to come back to it. I want to continue with the music store aspect of, of, of what's going on. So... You're working at the music store. You're moving up and up and up where you're getting more control. You're going to NAM, right? Um, give me a great NAM story. You've got to have a great NAM story. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I got to meet a lot of people. Met uh, met Steve Morris. And, uh, uh, that, that was really it. the first NAM show I went to. I met Steve Morris. Um, met uh, Bob Moog. Um, oh, nice. Uh, Jim Marshall shook his hand. Um, but one of the one of the coolest things, uh, Remo Belly was at the Remo booth, you know, Mr. Remo, and he was like 85 years old or something at the time. And uh, he didn't speak much English. I believe he was Italian, right? Um, and, uh, but he demonstrated the, uh, the ocean drum for us. And it was just really cool to, to be standing there, you know, and having Mr. Remo demonstrating his new, you know, his new invention to us. That was kind of cool. Yeah, lots, lots of. Uh, I got to see uh, uh, Sean Lane play. Oh wow! At uh, one of the after hours uh, shows. Um, how mind blowing was that? Can you tell the listeners how mind blowing was to watch him in person? Well, there were there were like three thousand people, and we were all sitting cross legged on the floor, you know, watching uh, Andy Timmons, Reb Beach, Paul Gilbert, uh, and then uh, 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 Joe Satriani came up. Well, Joseph. Well, and then it was it was Andy Timmons, Alex Skolnick, probably uh, by right, Reb Beach, and then Paul Gilbert, and then Paul Gilbert inter- introduced Sean Lane, and Sean Lane, uh, and then it was going to be Joe Satriani and maybe Steve Vai after that, um, but when Sean Lane started playing, um, everybody we've been there like an hour already, an hour and a half or whatever. When Sean Lane started playing, um, when he started ripping. Uh, people stood up the whole place the whole place stood up and um he took an extended solo and just everyone just was going nuts um and then after paul and and sean played uh three or four songs um it was time for joe to come on stage and it was 25 minutes later that that joe came on stage wow They, they the stage was dark for like 15 minutes and then the drummer came out and did an impromptu a drum solo you know and then uh 25 minutes later uh joe comes out he says uh you know how you doing i, I just been on the phone trying to find a job selling shoes <laughs> that's that's a, you know and for the for our listeners that don't know sean lane the coolest thing about the internet is when you use it for positive reasons it's amazing what you can find google his name youtube his name I mean, he played with Black Oak, Arkansas, I believe, when he was 16 years old. And if you watch some of that footage, there's some black and white footage out there of him playing. He's doing a lot of the stuff that you hear that is mind-blowing for that time period. Because I believe that was the late 70s when he was playing with Black Oak, from what I remember. And just phenomenal. It's really cool that you got to see that. I got to go into NAMM once. 
and it was just a surreal experience. Got to meet Paul Gilbert. Uh, I, you know, the, one of the coolest things, and, and when you went early on, it wasn't that big, right? It was more like music industry type people. Like when I went, there was over 100,000 people going a day. It, it was pretty big when, yep. I mean, even, even in the uh, early 90s, it was it was pretty big. It was still it was still that juggernaut. I remember, uh, I remember, this is the craziest story, I'll tell you this one, and the listeners will probably get a kick out of this too, especially the guitar player listeners. I'm uh, just walking around in awe, you know what I mean? And like, you know, the first time you go, you know, it's it, it's at the Anah- Anaheim Convention Center, right? And it's like five stories and, you know, it, it can be overwhelming if you don't pace yourself, right? And I, I went for like four days, so it was like, okay, I, I kind of like went crazy the first day and then I went, all right, just chill out. Like, you got three more days to see a bunch of stuff, right? And uh, I'm just hanging out and there's this guy just sitting playing, sitting on an amplifier, just playing, you know what I mean? No one's around him, right? And I see the white streak in his hair, and I go, holy shit, that's Alex Skolnick. He's just hanging out, just playing, you know, like I'm I'm online to get a a bagel in the morning with Adrian Vandenberg and, you know, Corey Glover's sitting at a table right next to me. And it's all just like, you know the vibe. It's like you don't get all fanboy stupid. You just realize they're just regular people. Um, But I'll tell you the one. I'll give you one more story, and we'll continue because this is one that was really neat. And I want to ask you the same question in, in reverse. So when I'm there, and I got a little starstruck, right? But most everybody was cool. Like I talked to Blue Saracino for like 20, 30 minutes. He was super cool, you know. Got to got to meet some people I've always wanted to meet, you know. Um, but uh, I'm hanging out, and I, and I was near the Ernie Ball booth. And you feel this energy, right? You just feel this weird vibe in the room, right? And I don't know if you pick ever pick up on those things, but it was this really weird vibe in the room. And Stevie Wonder walks by and you can feel all of the energy and i felt bad because the guy that was playing was playing a stevie wonder tune (laughs) i mean what the fuck are the odds of that right he's playing a stevie wonder tune and there's the master right there and it's like but you could feel that room and that energy shift have you ever been in a situation like that where there's been someone famous in the room and you can just feel that energy where you just know that like all of that energy in the room is focused on that one person yeah, that that does. Yeah, I don't know if I can uh, think of a particular example of that. Shoot, it doesn't happen a lot. You know what I mean? Like it's probably happened to me maybe once or twice in my life. You know what I mean? But that that meeting was just like wow. Like I'm, and I was probably probably twenty feet from him, and it was just really like. You know, like everybody's getting the phones out and shooting pictures and stuff. And I'm just like taking the moment in. Does that kind of make sense? You know, like you're just like, this is like, this is insane. It it, it was absolutely crazy. Um, So, yeah. So, Nam, you know, you get to go to that. You get to see some amazing stuff. I'm glad you shared that story with Sean Lane. I think more people really need to figure out who, you know, what he was about because such a great player and a lot of. I think he was, you know, in the forefront of a lot of that style of music that you hear people playing nowadays. You know what I mean? A lot of the, that that intricate guitar playing and, you know, just a lot of cool stuff that he did. So the music store thing, you decide to open up your own music store, right? But before you do that, you end up working for Crate, mm-hmm. right? And you and and the music store you worked at carried Crate, right? And so you're very familiar with the product. Can you let the listeners know? how you went from a mom and pop store to being an important part of the crate company. Yeah. Um, so crate was, uh, 
there were no guitar centers in Reno uh, in the, in the 90s. Right. And um, there was no store carrying Crate. And Crate is a, was a really good, you know, entry-level to mid-level amplifier. Um, and so, yeah, it was, a, it was a great brand for us, for me. Um, I sold tons of it. And um, I did, I sold, I was selling Crate on par with any of the guitar centers in uh, California. Um, is how I kind of got noticed, I guess, by St. Louis Music. Uh, and then we carried, started carrying Ampeg as well. We carried uh, Alvarez guitars, and that was all uh, St. Louis Music products. So, yeah, um, I did really well with, with all of their stuff. And then uh, they uh, interviewed me a couple of times. I interviewed with them once, and then a year later, I interviewed with them again and, and got, the, got the gig. It was a lot and of fun. And what was your responsibilities working for them? I had, um, my territory was uh, Northern California. That's like Bakersfield was the lowest point, uh, Bakersfield to San Luis Obispo. And so uh, draw a line there and it was everything above that. So I had the, the whole valley and the whole Bay Area. And um, there were probably 500 stores in that region. And you were traveling to all of them pretty much? Yeah, I'd leave on Monday morning and come back Thursday night a lot of times. Wow. And you were just making sure everything was going right in the stores yeah. and they got the yeah. got the gear they needed and stuff like so, that? Showing, showing the uh, uh, music store people uh, uh, the, the new product and, you know, what, uh, what was selling well for us and uh, fixing problems. And then uh, doing uh, in-store training, you know, and I, and I did that with uh, Guitar Center, too. I had eight Guitar Centers in my territory. And oh, wow. so I would go and do morning, uh, Ampeg training. Did you like it? Yeah, it was, it was stressful. It was, uh, it was hard on, uh, it was, it was hard on, uh, uh, the marriage, sure. um, uh, being, being gone so much, but, um, it, it'd be, uh, be a fun job to do now, but sure. those, those jobs don't exist like they used to. Um, like St. Louis Music doesn't have an outside sales force anymore, and a lot of companies don't, um, because of how the internet has changed the game. Yeah. Um, you don't need to see you know people's faces uh, you know in person as much as you used to. So, which is a shame too, because one of the things that I want to hit home because you opened up your own store and it's been going strong now for over a decade, um, is. The local music store to me is such an important thing that that us as musicians need to keep like thriving. We need to support local because like a perfect example, you know, I remember playing a gig in Carson and I uh, needed an, an adapter and I knew I could call you and you came through. And then I think there was another time I needed an amp and you came by my gig and brought the amp. And I'll, I'll tell all the listeners out there right now, Guitar Center is not going to do that for you. Like, it's not going to do that for you. The local place is going to do that for you. The, the local places where you establish that friendship, that connection, and that trust, really, like to drop off your instrument for repair, you know, to, to have that guidance, right? I remember me being a young, a young little redheaded kid with a lot more hair on my head <laughs> and uh, basically learning a lot from you, like learning... You know, learning about tone, learning about, you know, 
you got to put more mids in your sound. I remember you telling me that. Like, there were so many things that you were teaching me that I think became really important to my sound, my personal sound, and, and just understanding. And I, those places don't teach you that. You know what I mean? Because, like, it's it's not really a hands-on thing. It's more of a corporation. And, and mom-and-pop stores yeah. aren't a corporation, you know? Yeah. yeah, Your average employee at Guitar Center hasn't been there a year. I wow. mean, so, you know, uh, and... It's, it's, you know, not often that you, you know, that their employees are there for long enough to really sink their teeth into it, you know. And when they do start sinking their teeth into it, they're moved up to management. And they hire somebody, you know, they hire somebody brand new. So um, you don't you, you don't really get to talk to somebody who's really been immersed in it, you know. That's a great point. It's a great point. I, I mean, because the music store that we were at together where I taught at and and you were in the guitar department and then basically just running the whole entire show on the floor for the most part. I mean, I was there 20 years and you were there how many years? I was at the Reno store for 13. 13. And then you ran the Carson store for a couple of years and then you started your own your own store after that. So, yeah, it's 13 years, man, of, of me and you to, and still having a friendship and you're on my pod today. You know what I mean? So it it shows, I mean, I don't have any, you know, big box corporation people on my show. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't have any relationships with them, man. But, you know, you've always been good to me and a lot of other customers and a lot of people speak highly of you and they trust you. And I think that's super important. So talk to me about the transition from going to Crate and then, because you came back, when you came back from Crate, did you come back and work at Maytan and Carson? And yep. then you started your own store, correct? Mm -hmm. Talk to people, the listen, listeners that, that might be interested in, in trying to start their own music store. Talk, talk to the listeners about what it was like when you first started. First, when I first started this business? Yeah, your music store. Yeah. Um, so when I was working for St. Louis Music, um, I came up with the name for this store play your own music and the logo and the like the colors of the logo and um i made kind of a rough draft of what what that store would be like you know and then um the st louis music gig at the at the uh end of that i i called maytan and and uh um asked them if they you know if they needed me back for anything and it turned out that they did they needed a manager for their uh, Carson store um, so I uh, came back and managed that store for a couple of years but um, that store couldn't sustain itself and um, but we'd been doing it two years and I had a bunch of teachers teaching there I think I had five teachers teaching there and um, when Maytan you know informed me that they were going out of business um, it was time to dig out that plan for that music store um, and keep, and so uh, we were successful in keeping all of the teachers teaching the whole time through the, through the transition. And it was, uh, it was a fun time. Um, I had just, we had just lost our house, our, our, um, our, uh, we got, we were caught up in the 2006, uh, Oh yeah, you know, uh, housing uh, crisis. Um, so my credit was terrible at the time, and uh, I went to the only place that I could go to for a loan was uh, the Nevada Micro Enterprise Initiative, um, which 
worked with the uh, SBA and uh, I pitched them uh, my business plan and they gave me the biggest loan they could give me. So we started the store with a $35,000 loan. Wow. Which doesn't go as far as you think. Exactly. Exactly. I was trying to do that math in my head. Once you just threw that number at me going, man, that, so that first year, right. You got the loan. How hard was it? Like, how, how did you, how'd you put it together? Oh, uh, just, uh, I had a friend in, in, I have a friend in real estate and, um, he showed us a bunch of places and we, uh, ended up, we, we knew what part of town we wanted to be in. So when I say we, it's, uh, Carolyn and I, uh, yeah. she had a lot, a lot to do with the uh, beginning beginnings of this business. Um, we, um, we knew what part of town we wanted to be in and we found a place at the Carson mall. And, um, that's where we were for the first eight years. And then, um, I, I changed locations, uh, five years, five years ago. Yeah. That seems about right. Yeah. But it was, I mean, it was hard work every day. Uh, and it was, uh, I, I couldn't afford a whole lot of inventory. So I kind of spread stuff out, you know, as much as possible to make it look full. And, and, um, but we, uh, we carried the stuff people needed, you know, people need guitar strings, drumsticks and, and that sort of thing. So, um, just it was just really uh, hand to mouth for the first. Well, I mean, it kind of still is, but uh, <laughs> it, it's it's at least it's a little more comfortable these days. I've so were you like were you like throwing your own guitars and amps up <laughs> to yeah, make it look actually, bigger? I actually sold my three thirty five um, to buy a line of guitars. Oh wow! Uh, cheap, cheap guitars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, to uh, put on the wall and. I missed that 335. <laughs> uh, I know the feeling, man. There's certain guitars I had, same thing, and you're just like, oh man. But but for the for the better of the business, right? I mean, you're still going strong, you know. Um, what um, uh, what's the question I want to ask here? That if if you could tell people that were aspiring to open their own business something that you learned the hard way, that you would want them to learn not the hard way, what would it be? Well, I mean, you, you got to know your stuff, you know, I mean, uh, and, and I learned this business over, you know, it was, uh, I was in this business 15 years or, or more um, before I opened my own store. So there was a lot of stuff that I knew, uh, you know, about music stores. Um, but then, uh you know, owning a small business is kind of a different thing. There's, it's a, it's another set of, uh, uh, skills and, uh, takes a minute to, uh, to get all that together. What did I learn the hard way? That's a good question. I think I learned everything the hard way. (laughs) (laughs) Was there Um, something, is there something that jumps out at you where you're like, you know what? I should have put more, of my money into like I should have been more niche instead of trying to carry so many different things like uh, trying to figure out who I wanted to cater to to um, putting more into the repair side of things in the beginning, those type of things. Yeah. um, So repair is a big part of my business these days and it's a big part of my visibility, you know, as well. It, 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 uh, the, the word, 
has gotten out there and, and it, it, it brings a lot of people in. Um, and I really didn't specialize in it or really promote it that much in the beginning. Um, and, you know, I, I was, I certainly had stuff to do, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, didn't have a lot of free time, but um, the more that I got into repairs, um, the, uh, the more uh, beneficial it became. And, uh, and I, I still, um, I only do basic repairs. You know, I, I do, uh, if, if something's broken or cracked or needs refinished, I, I farm that out to other people that do that. I, I just do the really basic setups and refurbishing and stuff like that. But I'm amazed at how much people need that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. I always tell people, and, and it's funny because, you know, I'll have students and they'll be like, oh, can you take a look at this guitar? And I'm like, yeah, I could, but I, I'm, I'm not that guy. And they look at me all crazy like, well, you're a guitar teacher. And, and I go, yeah, I go, you drive a car, do you fix it? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> they they kind of go, oh, and I go, yeah, man. I go, I go, all my guitars, I take, I take to my buddy Tim down the street. You know, Tim is literally down the street from my house and it's like, you know how I like them, you know, you like, you know how I like them set up. And, and Tim, Tim, like yourself was always honest with me about, you know, Hey, I, I wouldn't buy this guitar. Hey, you know, I would try this or, you know, and it's, it, it makes a difference, but it's, it's funny because you probably got really good on the fly doing so many of these that it's probably benefited you also personally on your own instruments. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. My, my stuff is really well set up. <laughs> right, exactly how you like it, because you know, right? I mean, it's uh, it's it's amazing, you know, when you throw yourself into something. It's like when I started teaching, it's like I didn't know much. I mean, I only advertised teaching beginners because I thought I could teach beginners, but it's like the first like couple lessons you have, you realize beginners don't know anything, and you're trying to teach them like they know something. You have to realize like they don't even know what a fret is or they don't know how to push down or they don't know how to hold the guitar or hold a pick. And you start realizing, whoa, like I got to really rethink. Can't assume anything. Oh man. That was like, you want to talk about on the fly training. It was, you know, and, and I feel like I got pretty good at it within a couple months and then it's just constant tinkering over the years. You know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, it's probably the same thing that you're doing with the music store, right? You start figuring out what works, what doesn't work, you know, probably realizing that you're not in competition. You know what I mean? Because you can't be in competition with the guitar centers and whatnot. So you offer more service, I'm assuming, right? Right. Yeah, that's that. That was one of the foundational principles from the beginning: is offer uh, offer everything that Guitar Center can't do, which is you know uh, rentals and, and repairs and and um, you know uh, service. Uh, I, I run a recording studio out of the store. Um, you know uh, lessons, that sort of thing. Yeah. Are you? And 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 I don't know this for sure. I just want to ask this question. I think I know the answer. Are you the only employee? I now I am. I've had a couple of employees over the years. Okay. Um, but for the last uh, last three years, I've been running it solo. So you're so you're doing that, and obviously not the lesson part, right? You have you have some excellent teachers. Right. I mean, right. you know, I mean, you got a world famous teacher basically in Kurt Mitchell at your store. You know, learn to burn for. My older listeners, they remember, you know, Learn to Burn was a great stuff that was in a lot of guitar for the practicing musician. I actually ordered a bunch of those tapes living in New Jersey, not knowing I'd be moving to Reno a couple of years later. So uh, Kurt's a phenomenal guitar guitar teacher and player. And so to have him at your store is amazing. Um, but you do the recording. You do recordings there. 
you you sell, you repair. Um, thank you for even being on my show. I don't know how you have uh, the time <laughs> or the energy, man. Where do you get the energy to do it? Yeah, yeah. I just one one day after the after the next. Just being grateful, right? You know, being grateful yep. that you get to do what you love to do, right? I mean, you're you're still involved with music, you know, and I think that's the one thing I also wanted to talk about real quick because I know I do have some aspiring artists and musicians that listen to the podcast. What's your best piece of advice for somebody that wants to make a living at music? Like, how would you tell them to be able to do that? Well, usually, um, if if uh, somebody has that kind of question um tell them about all my friends with regular jobs that support their music habit um but they don't want that let's say the person doesn't want that and they're hell bent on like me when i was like 13 i knew all i wanted to do was be involved with music and where music took me at, at my age now is not where i thought it would take me at 13 but I found ways to make music my living for the last 20 something years. What advice would you give somebody that was like very hell bent on like I'm doing music? How would you open up their eyes to see like how to be able to do that? Well, you gotta, you gotta be persistent. I mean, you've got to keep trying just like, just like anything and you have to remain teachable um, and try to do things that get you into the music community, you know, um, uh, try to support people that are, you know, that are, uh, already in the music community or whatever, you know, just, uh, to try to be a part of it. Yeah. That's a great, I, and I love teachable. I think that's such a great word to use there. Um, I like diversify, you know, for yeah, me, it was huge because for me it was like, I was teaching guitar, I was playing in bands, I was doing session work, I was doing whatever I knew I could do, you know, I was booking clubs, you know, as long as it had the word music involved with it, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And I felt like all those things, you know, ended up helping me, you know, grow as a musician, but also helped me in staying in that path, you know, um, teachable is great, though, because I think the more that you allow yourself to be teachable, you know, the more opportunities you know, the more you keep your ego in check and the more you, you're wanting to learn and wanting to be, you know, understanding, listening to people that have been there, you know, not having the chip on your shoulder thinking you know everything at 21 or 20 or, <laughs> you know, that understanding that the people that are ahead of you in the game have under they understand what it and, and trust me, it's different, right? I mean, the Internet age is not we didn't go through that when we were younger. So how everything went, worked back then does not work the same as it does now. You know, it's very, it's very interesting. Um, I wanted to talk real quick about the, uh, the Pink Floyd tribute band you're in because, I, I, I mean, my mind was blown when I saw you guys perform. I mean, you could essentially close your eyes and really, really believe you were watching Pink Floyd. It's, it's unbelievable. And um, it's, it's, it's really all bells and whistles. It's not just you're playing Pink Floyd covers. You know what I mean? You take it serious, and it's, it, to me, it's unbelievable the job you guys do. So can you, can you talk a little bit about and promote this band that more people should yeah, know about? The, the Floyd, yeah. Um, well, we started out in 2010 um, or, or 2009 maybe um, as a, a club 
like a small club band called Eclipse, uh, a tribute to Pink Floyd. And um, we did that. I was in that group for uh, a couple of years. And the, um, the leader of the group was, um, you know, booking the band for 2000 bucks and paying us 150 each and taking the rest, you know, for himself. Uh, I know some. I've worked with some people like that before. <laughs> um, he was also uh, auditioning other musicians without you know, the knowledge or consent of the people that were in, in the band. Oh, wow. Already. He wanted it, he wanted it to be this modular thing, like, you know, like uh, rain or whatever, where there's enough members of the group to have two or three of those groups so that they could play all these different places or whatever. And, and uh, the keyboard player and the drummer, and I really felt like, you know, this, this is very personal to us. I mean, it's very emotional music. And when you're when you're playing when you're performing it, uh, it's 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 you're it's very emotional. You're very attached to it, you know. Um, and it's not like a, you know, it's not like a uh, a modular, you know, something that. I mean, yeah. Anyway, so um, we we decided to take it. We had a coup and kicked the leader out. And, <laughs> Um, hired Kurt Mitchell. He was our first um, hire, and then uh, 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 Grace uh, uh, Grace Hutchins. Uh, Gatsby, right? Gatsby, <laughs> yeah. Parkins. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, she, she was with us, and then um, then she uh, was going to have a kid, and um, so um, uh, we we hired Lisa. At that point, Lisa McQuiston, um, and then uh, our our newest member is uh, Jeff Laxo um, on saxophone and keyboards and, and that. But um, yeah, I love this band. This is really, truly the. I mean, I've been in a lot of bands, and like I was, uh, uh, you know, um, I had a, a an arc to my you know skills. You know, I I wasn't always a great team player or whatever. Um, but uh, I've played, played in a lot of bands uh, over the years. And, and this, this band is truly the first band I've been in where every member of the group is a lifelong musician. You know, every, everybody in the group is just an awesome player. Um, and it's really a, a dream come true. And, and it shows too, because you make a great point about, you know, Pink Floyd's music being, you know, emotional. I, I was lucky enough to do a show where I got to cover animals from front to back. And, oh, dude, it was stressful as hell, man. Um, <laughs> but that's my favorite Pink Floyd record. Mm -hmm. And it was just such an honor to be able to do that. And to, you know, to think that you guys are covering so, I mean, how much do you cover? Do you cover the Sid stuff? Or is it all just after do you cover the Sid Barrett stuff or is it all uh, we, we haven't gone there yet I'm, I'm pushing for it there's a there's a few Sid Barrett songs that I really like to do but we haven't gone there yet do you do anything after Roger Waters left or Post no Waters, yeah um, uh, we do a couple of songs um, like learning to fly or or fly sorrow or, or yeah we haven't done sorrow yet um, yeah most of the stuff is like on the uh, on turning the way maybe is another one you might be doing. 
we have done that one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. That's been on the list. Um, not a whole lot, but a, a few songs, Post Waters. But what? really concentrate on the, you know, the... The, the classic the lineup. Yeah, the classic stuff, yeah. What um, What's your favorite one to play live? If you could choose one. I know it's a super Dogs. loaded question. Oh, great choice. Great choice. Dogs is, is uh, because I get to play two of my guitars. <laughs> <laughs> I start the song on acoustic and then um, I get to, to play the the uh, uh, the solo in the slow section. Nice. Um, and But the number one reason that's my favorite song is because I get to play harmony lead guitar with kurt mitchell yeah yeah what a treat that's got to be i get to stand next to kurt mitchell and play uh play harmonies with him and you know every note you know every note's going to be exactly where it needs to be right you don't even have to yeah (laughs) you don't got to second guess anything man that comfort zone knowing that you got another player that's just you know when i when i used to play with ben holsclaw you know who you know obviously um, same thing with him too. I know we're going to talk about that in a second. He, uh, dude, he was on point always, man. It was so much fun to play harmony stuff with Ben. Cause I always knew Ben was going to be right there on point. So Ben, if you're listening, I know you listen to a couple of shows, man. It's so much fun playing with you. Speaking of that, um, let's talk about the band you play with in Ben. It's a faith no more tribute band, which is excellent called yeah. the name of the band faith is, no more. which I think is a very cool play on words. Um, that's an excellent band too. And, and it's, uh, it's one of those ones where, you know, I don't, I, I don't think people realize how difficult it is to cover faith no more because of how diverse they are as a band. Um, and sonically you guys do an excellent job. Your bass player has his tone nailed. Yeah, Nick, is, Nick is awesome. Oh, Nick's an awesome dude. And he's got that tone nailed. I mean, the machine. Oh, dude, he he is insane. I mean, you've got Jim Martin's tone and playing nailed. Ben does a great, great, great Mike Patton. I mean, it's it, the band's amazing, man. And then you have Brian playing drums, right? Yep. Yeah, playing drums. He, he, he doesn't miss a note. And then you never speeds up. Yeah. Oh, so nice, dude. Right. And then your keyboard players who? Uh, my oldest daughter. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, how cool is that? When I saw you, though, she wasn't playing keys, was she? In, I saw you at Tom Gordon's 50th. No, we had uh, Jeff DePaul, DePaul, DePauli playing uh, keyboards with us at, at that time. Cool. And and to let the listeners know, you have passed on the music bug, you know, within your family. Um, all of your kids play, mm-hmm. and rather well, too. And uh, I would love if you don't mind if you'd plug what your kids are doing because I really believe they're super talented and people need to follow them. And now that we've got Spotify and YouTube and stuff, you probably can find them. So do you mind yeah. plugging? So, yeah, my oldest, uh, Shaolin, uh, she's on Spotify. Uh, she's got a couple of EPs and a full-length record um, on there. And you can find her at Raksha Paksha. That's the name of uh, her group. Um, it's, uh, it's a four piece group now. Um, and then, um, Samantha, my middle, my middle kid, um, is on Spotify. Um, and her band is called Nightling. Um, and, uh, yeah. And 
Ivan's not on Spotify yet, but um, you can see him playing, you know, playing bass in local clubs around Reno, Virginia City and stuff. Um, Ivan was playing with Mojo Green for a couple of years. Yep. Um, that was a that was a fun time. Now, yeah. did, did you produce any of of their music? Yeah. Um, uh, Raksha Paksha, I, I produced the bulk of the full length album that uh, they did. And uh, uh, Tom uh, Gordon uh, produced uh, the, the two EPs that are on there. And he also produced the first and last song on, on, on the full length album. Nice. Kind of cool to bookend it with uh, stuff from from Tom's studio, uh, and then the Nightling stuff with Samantha. It, it was almost like a collaboration. I mean, she had the stuff really worked out, but we had a really good time in the studio. I, I was going to wonder. I was going to ask you about that. It's like, you know, is it easy for you to take the dad part out of the equation when you're producing, or is it is it interesting? Like, is it an interesting dynamic? I always wondered that, you know, like when you hear about, you know, like family members playing in bands together, you know, or brother, sister, or brothers, or, you know, or, or dad's producing stuff. Like how, how, what kind of a dynamic is that? Let the listeners know what that's like. Well, it got, it got easier over time. I mean, we, um, when uh, my, like 15 years ago, we had a, a family band where, five of us played uh, a, a set and we played a few gigs um and i mean gosh ivan was 12 wow. samantha, samantha was 13 and shaolin was 15 and um it was it was hard it was all of those cliches you know um rehearsals like inevitably somebody would like uh uh have a breakdown and you know there'd be arguments and yeah it was wasn't always pretty <laughs> but well, um, what is funny because you can't like at that at that age it's not like you can get away from them because <laughs> you all live together so it's not like when you have a band fight and the one person goes somewhere or you know i'll see you next week at practice and then everybody's better it's like <laughs> that doesn't happen right you know so <laughs> but but it's it's gotten easier over time. I mean, uh, uh, I've been working with them on on uh, recording projects for forever, really. Um, and uh, the more time goes by, the more. Well, I mean, they're they're adults now, so sure, sure, sure. I think it's so cool, man. It's just one of those things that you just, you know, like my little one is showing interest in music here and there. And the biggest thing I'm trying to do, and he likes drums, you know what I mean? But he really likes singing and he, he raps a little bit or he thinks he can. It's pretty funny. He's only seven, you know, seven and a half. Um, but I try not to push anything on him. You know what I mean? Where a lot of parents will push sports on kids and those type of things. I don't want to push music on him. You know, I, I want him to find it himself. You know, I, I had him, I had him play on my, on my, on my record. Um, you know, I had him hit like a cymbal on one of the tunes, you know, cause I wanted him involved in the record and it was important to me, but uh, I just, I didn't want to push him. You know what I mean? I wanted to, to find that, you know, and he's always talking about dad, you know, we got to put a band together and all this stuff. I'm like, all right, buddy, you know, and I got an electronic drum kit for him. And, you know, so it's uh cool. It's yeah, it's cool. It's going to be interesting to see what happens and where things go. I'm I'm really really excited about it. Um, I wanted to uh, I wanted to let people hear you play guitar a little bit, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to kind of just have a fun little 
kind of guitar swap thing where we just talk about licks and ideas and you sure. know give give like uh give like a mini guitar lesson for the listeners out there that are guitar players so if you are not a guitar player you're probably going to turn off the pod so thanks for listening <laughs> if you're not it still might be really interesting to check out even if you're not you know a guitar player but uh Vince is an amazing player, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun to pick his brain and ask him some questions. So, uh, yeah, so uh, hopefully you enjoy this. And uh, All right, so we're going to do a little guitar playing. Uh, this is me playing my tone. And then Vince, play something real quick. Awesome. Okay, so when you're here listening to the audio part of this podcast – You'll be able to distinguish the two tones as we're talking, right? So you can you can hear the difference in the tones. Um, so Vince, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about with guitar playing is when you construct like licks and riffs and stuff like that, one of the biggest questions I get from a lot of students is how do you go about doing ones that sound cool? And I know this is such a like a big, you know, wide open question to you, but when you're when you're putting something together when you're playing you know like some licks and some ideas when you're playing over a, a jam track which i i completely endorse like get on youtube play over jam tracks i mean it's amazing what's available for you um what are you thinking about what are you doing what are you what are you trying to like remember to do when you're playing well um you know you learn all the the basic you learn all the regular stuff and um then the the trick is taking the regular stuff and doing something new with it, you know, uh, not, I don't know, not, that's, that's the most basic uh, blues thing you could do, but, um, well, like when I'm, when I'm constructing a solo for a song, um, I will learn how to play the lead vocal line. I will uh, copy on the guitar um, what the singer is doing. And not necessarily use that, but at least start from a place where I understand the, the melody of the, of the lead vocal or the hook or whatever. Um, and uh, sometimes I'll like start with the first three notes of it and then, you know, branch out from there, go different directions with it. That's super smart, man. It's, it's you know, or a saxophone line, you know, mm -hmm. but trying, trying to grab melodies from other instruments besides the guitar kind of gives you that different perspective on how to approach something. Um, can you give us like a little demonstration of something like that? You know, where you could just take up like a, a basic lick, make it a little more spicier or things that you're um, like uh, adding to, you know, like for me, something I, I do is I'll do like passing tones and I'll take like, uh, let's say I'm doing like a, a Dorian thing. And I'll add those. Those, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, if you know the scale and you see the scale, you could always see what's not in the scale. As crazy as the sound is, it's basically chromatic, even though it's not chromatic per se. Right. So I'll think of like, well, where's like those six notes, I'm just playing the fourth, fifth and seventh fret on the, on the uh, D and G. Right. But then I know that the third fret on both of those strings isn't in the scale. So I know I can go, right? And then you're starting to get more of that melody you're not getting from just going, right? Right? So those are the type of things that I think about when I'm, when I'm trying to play or like uh, trying to see an arpeggio or something inside that, that idea where I'm not playing 
straight across, or if I'm going to play three notes per string, I try to think of not playing them in order or playing two notes on one string, even though I can play three, I don't, maybe I don't want to. So like still keeping that Dorian feel. That little thing right there where I'll go four and five on the G string, and then I'll grab the eighth fret on the B string. And it's just ways to not sound, because I think a lot of students, in, and, and even not students, just people that are starting to get into improvising, they get stuck at just running the scale front to back, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, um, give me something you like to do. Um, like with um, A minor, um, you've got the, you've got the pentatonic box and then, Um, but uh, especially with the changes, I like to I like to picture the the chords under the changes, you know. So you're uh, you know basically just spelling out a a, a, a chord. It's so smart, man. It's and and you know one thing I want to talk about too because I think you're an absolute master at this is dynamics. Talk to the listener. You know, well, if, you don't have, if you don't have speed, then you <laughs> better have dynamics. <laughs> dynamics are important, though, right? Like, I mean, you know, how often how often are you not on ten on your volume knob on your guitar? Um, quite often lately. I'm on ten right now, but. Um, See, I'll back it off. I usually start at about eight and a half or nine, you know. Right. Uh, just give it a little, give it a little cushion uh -huh. uh, to give yourself a little bit of, of uh, uh, dynamics for later. But it makes, um, it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? It does. It does, and it more it warms up the tone when you turn it down just a little bit. It warms up the tone a little bit a lot of times, especially with a with a strat. Um, yeah, we should probably we should probably talk about what we're playing real quick for the for the audio listeners. I'm playing the Jason Becker Kiesel 24 uh, Fred guitar, the numbers guitar. Um, absolutely love this guitar. It's uh, two humbuckers and a single coil in the middle. It's a super versatile guitar. Kiesel is doing some amazing shit. Um, what guitar are you playing? You're playing a Strat. Yeah, this uh, used to be a Jay Terser, um, and I bought this Jay Terser for 110 bucks. From a music store in Atascadero, uh, just I just fell in love with it, and I played the frets off the original neck, and um, I put this. This is a Warmoth, uh, Warmoth compound radius jumbo frets, um, bird's eye maple neck that that I put on it uh, probably about ten years ago now. Um, Different pickups. But, yeah, um, Seymour Duncan vintage rails. Oh, nice. They're, they're noiseless uh, single coils. Um, yeah. It sounds great, man. It's crazy to think it's a $110 body guitar. That Warmoth neck, though, man. The Warmoth necks, I, tell you, I have one on my Strat. When I played the, the, the frets off my Squire, Tim threw a Warmoth neck on there. And holy crap, did it make a difference in tone. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's a $300 neck, probably. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, well, well worth it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, 
So, you know, dynamics are really important. One of the other things that I talk to my students about a lot is thinking and writing down all the things you can do when you improvise and trying to keep like a mental log of that. So, for example, me and you could trade licks for about a half an hour and we both might forget to do octaves. You know what I mean? We both might forget to string skip, you know? So one of the things I always tell students is like, hey, write down as many techniques you think, you know, where it's like hammer on pull-offs, repeating phrases, string skipping, tapping, you know, bending, slides, you know, artificial harmonics, anything you can think of. And then you try to start to build that foundation of, of understanding phrasing. Because phrasing and dynamics, I think, are the two really important things that a lot of people are missing out on nowadays for the most part. Um, when you phrase, what's your and, and and we're just having fun talking about guitar, right? And, and you know anybody can talk about guitar and licks and whatnot, um, but we're getting more into the you know more into you as a personal player, right? So when you're thinking about like phrasing and you're approaching phrasing, how do you approach phrasing? Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah, um, uh, I take cues from the the head of the song you know the, the the main melody of the song i take cues from that um and um i just you know sometimes you want to uh play something that's simple and and that you know that's familiar to people's ears uh, right. to draw to draw them in and then uh you know out of, out of not wanting to repeat yourself uh uh start expanding on it and doing doing things yeah like string skipping like uh um you know um play uh play you know and you can play uh uh half notes and quarter notes and eighth notes and stuff like that but then a lot of phrases um are kind of outside of you know outside of the rhythm you know you're not playing uh okay. rhythmic all, rhythmically all the time sometimes you, you just play something um play a lick a little bit slower yeah. than the tempo of the song and uh end up playing uh you know one less quarter note than than you would have if you were playing quarter notes or whatever i, I love that dude that, that to me is such a great point i think another thing that guitar players are afraid of is silence space in between the notes yeah you know what i mean I, that's I'll, one of the biggest problems oh my <laughs> god right you know <laughs> Um, you know, the other thing, too, that I, I always found that was interesting, because what I think it does is it kind of puts the brakes on you is like, let's say we're taking a phrase and, and I'm just going to do like a, a pentatonic. Right. And I'm going to take an idea and run with it more into that. And I'll explain it in a second. So if I let's say I'm playing like. A, right. So we know that that second string, eighth fret right on the b string so many people bend that note right it's one of those things that people bend right you know but now let's look at adding the aeolian to that pentatonic because the aeolian is you know works with that that pentatonic obviously right it's in the same same key so yeah i promise <laughs> so if, if we go on the b string five six eight then i'm talking about frets for audio listeners those three strings, those three notes on that string are the notes of that aeolian on that string, right? So you're basically just adding that note right there into that scale. And then you can add the B in on the on the fourth fret of the G string, right? 
you'll still see people bending that note, right? But if you look at what you're doing, because you're bending to another tone, people don't realize, like when you bend the eighth fret and you bend it up, you have to bend it up a whole step or it's going to sound a little weird, right? I mean, sometimes that's cool though, right? But I look at that scale going, well, I could bend this fifth fret up a half step to six. I could bend six up to eight. And what that does is it puts me in unfamiliar territory. So let's say I go like... Uh, I'm not going to run the same lick that I always do if I'm bending that eighth fret up a whole step. Does that make sense? And those yeah. are some of the things that I try to think of when I'm improvising. Like, what am I not doing? Like, what autopilot am I going too much into <laughs> when I'm soloing? And how do I break free out of that autopilot vibe? And, and a lot of that is trying to find those things. Like, you know, a lot of times we play pentatonics, right? Um, what if we played a pentaton like in, in a Hendrix way where you play it forward backwards, you know? So instead of going eight, five, seven, five, right? Going five, eight. And instantly, it doesn't kind of sound as pentatonic anymore. You know what I mean? You start adding those extra notes and those color notes sliding in. And the next thing you know, you're doing this really neat stuff that is getting you out of really the comfort zone, right? Because that's what we all struggle with is, is and when we've been playing for a while, you know, we have those stock licks we always do and, and we get comfortable so much that we don't basically try to get out of the comfort zone to become a even better player or just a more knowledgeable player. Does that make sense? You know, you know, so that's one of the things that I think about with uh, when I'm playing over things and I'm really trying to do different type of stuff. Um, when you're doing chord stuff and uh, you want to do something different chord wise, are you, what are you thinking about? Like, let's say if I said, I'm going to like the, the song calls for an A minor, but you've got freedom to do whatever you want over the A minor. What are you thinking about? Is there a certain thing you'd think about? Like, um, I, I try to. Uh... minor that's a, a minor no, but, that, but that's what i'm talking about like how, like you know or like my minor nine i love is you know that's that sound you know um or like uh, you know like a five at nine you know just keeping it simple not even hitting that not even hitting that minor third or you can you know those type of things you know um I, I've been for uh, years. I've been working on um, trying to see all the all the chord shapes that are available. You know, yeah. um, um, and then. Uh, I've been doing that a lot lately with uh, major chords, just trying to, to, to see all, all the places where you can play major chords. And playing uh, like, like bar chords, like bar chords that, that are, you know, not, so that's the C-shaped bar chord. 
hardly, you know, you hardly see that. Um, trying to get as much mileage out of that as possible. Yes, hard, man. It's like you know one of the tricks that I learned a long time ago, and I and I forget how I learned it, but you know, taking that C-shaped bar chord, right? But then not playing the full bar chord of it. So you start off with, let's say, we'll do C to F, right? So here's your C, and for the listeners audio-wise, this is probably hard as hell to follow, but um, it will be available on video-wise too. So the bar chord on C, I'm starting on the, the third fret of the fifth string, that shape. If you remove your first finger, you still have that C chord. You still have the three notes that make it a C. If you take your ring finger and put your first finger there instead, and you know this, right? And then I'll play half of that. Right, so now I'm playing a one four chord progression, right? I'm playing the C and the F, but I'm not playing with the root, right? I'm playing the D. Here's another cool thing, you probably already know this. I'm really telling this for the listeners. If you go from C to F, that shape you're inside is basically inside that pentatonic. And you can get so much mileage off of that. And there's so many songs that are one fours. I wouldn't never do it in like a blues thing, but like uh, what I got by Sublime or, you know. And you can just slide that up, up two frets if you need the five chord. Absolutely. Yeah. It does sound like a lemon color song. Yeah, it does. It does. And, and, you know, it's like every fucking stone song known to man too, right? You know what I mean? Um, but it, but in standard tuning, not in uh, open G. <laughs> so, but, but it gives you like an idea of like how you can start to take your basic idea of improvising and, and really color it more, you know, um, there's so many cool little tricks. I like doing a lot of stuff with uh, the Paul Gilbert trick of the three octave arpeggios. I don't know if you know those. I love doing those. I'll show it to you real quick. It's basically taking like, um, let's say you do like a major arpeggio and we'll just do A for example for the listeners. So it's um, five on the sixth string and then four, seven on the, on the fifth string. And that's a major arpeggio. That position can be moved to the next octave. Which oh, would, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know that stuff, right? So there's a, there's a thing that, that I do when I'm warming up is, um, practice um playing that without looking at it and and it's it's been i've been doing that for a few years just trying to play that arpeggio without looking at it and it, it's given me a better like confidence in where i am on the neck you know oh, totally using so the what, how is how is paul gilbert's thing different what he does and and, and how i expand upon it too is once you understand that concept and you understand that basically you're just starting your arpeggio on just the sixth and fifth string, right? That shape moves, right? And it'll move octave wise. But the thing is, as long as you keep it on the sixth and fifth string to start off with, you have essentially can play anything. So you could play like, um, you could play like a, a E minor seven, right? But start on the B instead of the E, right? So, and then you're doing, you can do like, 
scale parts. There's so many different things. And, and what it does is it allows you to see different places on the neck to be able to move around on, but also not getting stuck in playing the root note to start off with. So one of the exercises I'll do with students that are interested in stuff like this is I'll say, let's take a, let's take a chord. And uh, I like doing like either a three string or a three note or a four note chord, right? So like, let's say for example, uh, A minor add nine, right? So it'd be an A, C, E, and a B, right? And then I'll try to find a way to play it on those strings. So one of the way, and not use the root note. So I'll go like B and C, right? And that'll be on the sixth string, that's seven and eight on the sixth string. And then seven and 12 on the fifth string. So B, C, E, A. Right, but then what I'll try to do is go into something else from there, you know, or instead of running it all the way down, maybe I'll just run it halfway down. So let's say, and then maybe like, so then you're not running an exercise just all the way across and then you're, and then you're not starting from the root. So then it sounds really interesting. And if you play over like, um, this will be weird because we're, you know, on a delay for a second, right? Just hold an A minor chord for me, if you don't mind. So you see, it's like I'm going from that idea and it sounds, it sounds really like um, exotic sounding almost. But if I started with that A note, then I'm starting in unison right off the bat. Right, if, right. If that makes sense. And, and, you know, that's one of the biggest things I've been working on for years to get out of is trying not to start something off in unison and trying not to end on the root note. So I put like one of the easiest things to do is like a hot potato game. So let's just keep it in A to keep it simple, like pentatonic, right? So if you look at a pentatonic scale, right, there's your, there's your A and that's what everybody wants to end on, right? So if you play like a, right? So what I'll do is I'll hot potato off of it. And you can do this anywhere, which is kind of neat. If you go back two frets, it's a flat seven. You go forward two frets, it's a nine. So if you take that lick, like, I don't know, like, you see how much cooler it sounds, right? Or, or the nine sounds really trippy. And it's just enough tension. Yeah. Another trick I like to use just to get out of that, you know, getting stuck in basically just playing in unison, you know, you, if you end a phrase on, and cause sometimes it, you know, though, to, to, for the listeners to understand this too, sometimes it's really cool to end on a root note because it just is what the song calls for. Right. You know, sometimes we try to out trick ourselves and uh, we try to get too over the top and sometimes really a good old pentatonic scale ending on the root. It's exactly what you need for that certain section, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, so um, if you... Um, uh, if you put put that nine where you expected the one to land, and yeah. then put, you know, put some little tag on after, you know, um, you've... Uh, you've uh, uh, there's this expectation that you're going to land on the root and you land on another note, but then you, you know, pull it back to, uh, to the root or whatever. Yeah. Oh, it's super cool, man. It's uh, you know, another trick I like to do is uh, 
if I and, and bring that neck up a little bit so the listeners can see you that are watching. Yeah. There we go. So uh, another thing I like to teach is trying to be um, trying to pay attention more like you talked about earlier about chords. Right. So if if you're playing like over a blues progression. Right. And you're the rhythm guitar player and we're playing an A, you're probably going to play a dominant seven. Right. If it's a blues progression. Mm -hmm. bus right. So like, you know, like a. Right. That type of vibe, you know. But when people play blues, they play mostly what? Pentatonic, right? So, so that's fine, right? But the thing that people don't realize is they're not playing the note that's part of the chord they're playing over. So they're actually playing the flat third instead of playing the major third. And when you play the major third, right, right, then you're... Right? So basically when I look at that, I try to explain to people playing a a uh over a dominant chord i would play the mixolydian scale but then i would also use part of that mixolydian scale with the pentatonic and then just dance yep. and dancing and out of it you know what i mean yep. and it's, it's amazing the mileage you can get on that and you instantly turn people's ears because they're not expecting to hear it you know what i mean i know it sounds crazy and it might this might be basic stuff to some people some people we might be opening up a ton of like you know eyes and ears with this lesson but that's just simple like there's my major third there's my flat seven there was there's your minor third and then your major third exactly but i'm but i'm not i'm not holding the minor third so it's almost like a passing tone right you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's just super cool stuff. And that's where you get that BB King stuff, that right, that type of, you know, that those licks. But a lot of that's just finding those the that connecting the scales to the chords. How uh, how important do you think that's been for you to like discover that, to understand that that relationship and understanding why that relationship's important? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a big thing. Um so you've got you've got I, most of my playing when, when I'm playing in minor is, is, uh, the minor pentatonic and Dorian. And then, so you've got, you've got the minor pentatonic box available to you. You've got Dorian available to you. And then you've got the shape of the chord, you know, the, um, uh, uh you know, you, you think you can think about it in three different ways and blend all of that together. Or even, even extensions too, right? When you think about it. So like if you're trying to like play over an A minor chord, you know, you can play the G, which is the is the flat seven, gives you a minor seven chord, like together. You minor at nine. You know, you play the D, it gives you an eleven. You know, and it's really neat stuff where, you know, a lot of times people aren't thinking in that. And it's not like the other thing that's cool about it too is for the people that don't want to get too immersed with the theory as aspect of it, one of the things that's cool is as you start messing around and you hit something neat, one of the things I tell the students the smartest thing to do is pay attention to the notes you hit, right? Figure out what it is on the fretboard, but then pay attention to what chord you played over. Because I know as a kid, I would do that all the time. I'm like, oh, I played something really cool. I'm going to do it again. But then the next chord came and it didn't sound as cool. But I didn't realize it's because those notes don't sound the same over the next chord. You know what I mean? And I had to start putting two and two together. Listening to the rhythm, whether it's a bass player, a guitar player, a keyboard player, everybody together, like is super important in terms of also creating neat stuff. Cause you know, for example, if you're playing like Lydian, right? And you know, Lydian 
the sharp four is what makes Lydian, right? So a lot of times when you when you get really that Lydian sound is when you're adding a sharp four note into a chord. So like if I'm playing that an A major, right? And I add that note, there's your Lydian sound, right? Like the Satriani virus. Right? You know, and that just you getting that like um And it's like it's like hitting those hitting those notes that sharp four, you know, coming back to it, like teasing it, knowing that that sharp four, which would be D sharp in that case over the A, it's like you knowing that that's the note you want to target, you know, playing like a playing like um, harmonic minor, right? So harmonic minor is just a, a minor scale, right? An Aeolian with a raised seven, right? But you don't hear that tone until you get to that seventh note, right? It's just a minor scale. Then you hear it, right? But if you attack it from that note, now you start to hear that magic come out of that scale. A lot of people don't realize that and they don't pay attention to the notes. That, and if you take the chord away, right? If you take the chord away, you lose the vibe. And that was the point of the Lydian. Once you take that Lydian chord away from the chord progression, then you lose the Lydian feel. Um, a really good example of that, though, and and uh, you probably know this, uh, but for our listeners that don't, Joe Satriani's "Flying in the Blue Dream" record is a great record. Record. Wise, so he every chord he plays changes Lydian. Did you know that? And then he just plays a different Lydian scale over the next chord, so he never loses. That. The feel of the Lydian, because all he does is shift into another sharp four chord, but then he plays the corresponding Lydian over that chord. It's, I used to love to read his Guitar World columns when yeah. he monthly. Just an amazing, amazing guitar player, man. Just really smart guy. But feel too, right? I mean, feel super important. You don't need to know any of the theory stuff we're talking about. It's more about feel. You can practice dynamics all day long without knowing a single lick of theory. I mean, I think I think theory helps, and I think it's important to know, but. Sometimes just hitting a chord big, you know, and just like shaking the chord, man, I mean, speaks volumes, right? Sometimes yeah. hitting a note. I mean, you know, you you play in that Floyd tribute band, right? How many times do you hear certain licks like um uh like Shining You Crazy Diamond? That first lick, you know, it's just so fucking powerful. You know what I mean? This is the wrong guitar for that. You need a you need a whammy bar for that. Oh, you need a, uh, uh, that one. Yeah, no, no, the 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 first lick. Yeah. Yep. And so on. Yeah. So on and so on, man. <laughs> Super important though, right? Man, it's it's and it's the way you played that, man. The dynamics you put in there. You know, th and there's definitely things you put in there that Gilmore doesn't play. You know what I mean? You spice that up a little bit, but that's what makes it Vince Gates and not David Gilmore. You know what I mean? Which which I think is important. To have your own voice on the instrument too, you know, ladies and gentlemen that are listening to this podcast still, it's important to have your own sound. The, the biggest compliment you could ever get from somebody is that you sound like you. That you, that you don't sound like somebody else. Like people just start talking about you as a player and not, oh, that Eric Stanglin, he sounds like Eddie Van Halen or that Vince Gates, he sounds like David Gilmore. It's like, you wanna be like, yeah, 
Vince Casey's a great player. Like they don't say you sound like somebody. Like you have your own sound, and that's I the big s- thing. You I must- sound like everybody that I've ever heard mixed together. Uh, yeah, with, with I've got a couple of things that maybe are, are me, but um, now, you, yeah. You don't. You've always been too humble, man. You have your own unique sound that makes you who you are. You know what I mean, and that's that's important. And you and you have a lot to offer. And I think for any listener that's aspiring to being a you know a soloist or work on improvising, it's all about finding you and your voice. And and a lot of times, and I can tell you this right, and we know this together, right? How many licks and solos and things did you learn over the years? you know, in your formidable years when you were learning how to play guitar, essentially, and some of those licks still creep up, they might be just a little bit different, right? But like, those, so the seeds of like, kind of like, going, oh, he went there. Oh, wow. The way he played that pentatonic, I never would have thought to have gone there. And then just next thing you know, you know, you start coming with more, more ideas. And it's like, holy shit, like, you're starting to hear it, you know, so for the younger, the younger players out there, and you could be 65 and be young right the biggest thing is is find your own voice and don't be so hard on yourself right i mean especially when you first start playing the reason why nothing is going to come out sounding cool is because you don't have the dynamics and those things in the ear listening yet but you will play stuff that is cool and then you just expand upon it but 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 treat yourself good man be nice to yourself when you it, is, it is frustrating for older beginners um because you know once you've gotten to be 40 50 years old you're good at a lot of things. You don't have to. You don't. You don't suck at anything anymore. And when you you know decide to, you want to play guitar, it's really frustrating to to you know to not be able to make a good sound on the instrument. But it just uh, it just takes uh, perseverance and teachability. Um, and uh, um, you know. You gotta, you gotta play. You gotta learn how to play the lick, yeah. And then you have to play the lick right, yeah, a, a couple hundred times, yeah. And then you got it. And you know, if you if you can get to the place where you're playing it right, and then you play it right uh, a couple hundred times, you'll have it for the rest of your life, and you can move on to the next lick. I, I look at it as like trees and branches. You know what I mean? Like where you have that one little lick. And then you can go in so many different directions, like so many different branches on a tree, right? Just from that one lick, you know, it's in the feel, right? The feel is important. You know, it's, it's important to feel what you're playing. One of the things that I can't stress enough is don't be afraid for silence. Don't be afraid to play like a phrase where you're like, uh, I don't know, like, uh, afraid of that like that space where, where like like you know vibrato i think is one of the biggest things that i think is important for players when they start learning how to improvise vibrato is essentially your voice on the instrument it is it does become your part of your sound yeah absolutely you know and and just understanding understanding your fingers create most of your tone it really does and not your pedals no they help <laughs> they help, they help. And it's, and it's how you react to your sound, right? I think that's another big thing. If you're comfortable with your sound, you're going to play better. You know what I mean? If you, if you understand how your sound is, you're going to adapt to your sound more. And I think that's what makes you sound more like who you are and whatnot. 
Um, before we go, I had a, a lot of fun doing this. I would love to do this with you again, man. Just sit and talk shop and just give some people some ideas and, and whatnot. I, you know, if, it, if people like what we did tonight, um, can you take me out? Just play something, just play anything. Just, uh, just get into it. Awesome, man. I appreciate your time, how generous you were with it tonight. Um, give me a give me a quick plug. Plug yourself on on where people can find you and uh and stuff like that real quick. Well, play your own music in Carson City, uh eight eight five play if you want to call. Um I'm on Facebook. Um yeah, or and uh, you can uh, check out my Floyd band at uh, thefloydband.com. Um, yeah, that's all the plugs I got. Your faith no more tribute band. You have uh, stuff? We, we have a we have a Facebook presence. Um, we don't have a website yet. But there's a, there's uh, some videos of us playing on our on our Facebook page. Awesome, awesome. Go check all that stuff out, ladies and gentlemen, for the people that know Vince and the people that don't know Vince. You know, and uh, support your local music stores and support your local musicians. Good lord, we've had an enormous tough time the last 17, 18 months of this pandemic, man. Any support you give us makes an enormous difference. And just like my show, if you're still listening, you know, throwing a couple bucks my way, you know, supporting the show, you can do that on anchor.fm. Eric Stanglin, that makes a difference. You know, you can find me on, on Vemo at uh, Eric slash or not slash hyphen Stangland. That's strange land without the R. Um, you can support me that way. You can support me without giving any money or doing any of that by just giving me a review or sharing, you know, anything that I do with this podcast on your social media. It, any eyes and ears on this helps me out tremendously. And I love what I do when I get to hang out with good buddies like my buddy Vince Gates here and just get to talk and play music and learn more about him and basically his whole life story, which we got to learn about today. Not all, right, but we got to learn a, a great amount of, you know, what it takes to run a music store locally, you know, when you're the guy, what it takes to, you know, how, how he got into recording, how he, how he went from, you know, starting working in a music store to doing what he's doing now. And he's doing it, he's been doing it for a long time. And, you know, it's an amazing thing. So Vince, dude, stay safe out there, man. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Brother, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, man. <laughs>